Today on episode number 219 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Dr. Rebecca Pope Ruark discusses her book, Agile Faculty. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Joining me on today's episode to talk about her book, Agile Faculty, is Dr. Rebecca Pope Ruark. She's an associate professor of English specializing in professional writing and rhetoric at Elon University in North Carolina. She teaches courses in rhetorical theory, qualitative research methods for writers, grant writing and publishing, and also coordinates Elon's Experimental Design Thinking Studio in Social Innovation Pilot Program. Her research interests include effective collaboration, project-based service learning pedagogies, design thinking in higher education, and Scrum project management. A certified professional Scrum master, Rebecca has been teaching students and faculty to use Scrum for more effective project work for over eight years. She, as you will hear about today, is the author of Agile Faculty, Practical Strategies for Managing Research service and teaching available from the University of Chicago Press. Rebecca, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you so much for inviting me, Bonnie. The moment I heard about the title of your book, I was all in. (laughs) I was all in. And as you know, it took me a little while to read it. But that was only because I had other things, quote unquote, I had to read. But yours was like a really fun one. I think one of the things I'm really fascinated by as I'm learning more about the things that you wrote about is just even this word agile. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about agile, how you define it, I'm sure, which is rooted in how the these approaches define it and, and, and sort of what that means to you, because it, it has to mean a lot for you to include it in the title of your book. Yeah, it does. And there's there's a debate in the kind of software agile community about whether it's kind of capital A agile or lowercase a agile. So if we if we look at the at the lowercase version, obviously it's just kind of flexibility, being able to kind of go with the flow and to be okay with some ambiguity or changes as they kind of come up on the fly, which a lot of you know knowledge workers might have some challenges with when you're kind of on one path, you kind of want to stick to it. But things change at a, at a minute's notice sometimes, and we know that from faculty work, things can change instantly. So the agile with a lowercase a is really about just being open to changes and being flexible in that. With a capital A, it kind of represents more of a, of a set of project management methodologies. Some folks in, in Agile don't like that word, but it really is a process, right? It's a way of setting up a process. And it started from software development. When you think of kind of old versions of software development, it was very, we're going to spend six months planning and we're going to, when the coders are going to get it. And then the testers, and it was, they call that waterfall. And it, it was very inefficient and it, it couldn't respond to change. And in software, obviously, you really need to be able to respond to change. So the last 20 years or so, there's been different ways of, of rethinking that process so that you can be more flexible, that you can be more responsive to change and open to that. So that's really about working in shorter cycles rather than in those long kind of, I'm going to spend nine months writing this book from the beginning to the end kind of work. 
I know that a lot of people listening will at least be familiar with the learning management system canvas, even if that's not the one they use at their campus. But I know a lot of people also use Mm -hmm. it. And that is an example of a company that develops software, in this case, a learning management system that uses this approach. And for me, I think about some of the learning management systems that I used to use or still do Mm -hmm. at other institutions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's exactly what you described. There are some that you might get updates one time per year. Exactly. And it's very different from Canvas because every week, well, yeah, I mean, every week I get an email and something's either going into beta and then they Mm -hmm. have this very rich, vibrant community that all gives feedback. And Mm -hmm. in fact, anything that they're working on is voted on by Mm -hmm. this community that's using it, teaching with it and knows it well. And then things can get escalated up and then it goes into development Mm -hmm. and then you can test it out in beta, get more Mm -hmm. input. And then they're regularly updating that. So they're using this Mm -hmm. agile method. And where did you first get the idea for even just being interested in agile? And then also this has got to be embedded more in higher ed, or at least I shouldn't, I shouldn't say got to, (laughs) wouldn't it be nice if it were more embedded in higher ed? Where was, where did that first come up for you? It kind of a two phase thing. I during my PhD program at Iowa state, I was teaching a lot of business communication and technical communication courses and was doing collaborative projects, was doing group projects in my classes, but they weren't very successful at all. It was very clear that the students had slapped things together at the end, hadn't read what the other people were doing. And that was really frustrating. And I I wanted students to collaborate because it wasn't something that I was comfortable with as a student. And I knew kind of from from going to work outside of academia that that was really important. So I wanted my students to at least get some safe experience with that to test it out. So when I started my job, I really wanted to focus on that. And at the same time, when we moved to North Carolina, my husband, who is a software developer, was working at a new company. And he had just kind of started a dinner table talk about how they were doing this kind of new process and how they would meet every morning and answer a few questions and then how they would work in sprints. And he was just kind of using all of this language. And it finally kind of hit me that software developers aren't great at collaboration either. Um, And most of them will tell you that. But this is a process that helps them actually collaborate in a way that naturalizes it. It gives you the opportunity to share what you're doing, to share where you're stuck, and to do that more regularly than kind of being in your hole and you know not being willing to ask for help or not knowing how. So the more he talked about that, the more I started to kind of read up and look at some of the classic texts. And I started small. I started kind of with a daily stand-up, which we can talk about in a little bit, but kind of just helping students kind of report out to each other and ask for help. And then over the course of the years, I built up to having whole entire 14-week classes built around the sprint cycle. I think that's an interesting example in terms of just what what we're working on. And I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find this to put in the show notes. If I can, I will. But a lot of people started to, in addition to having their regular blog, which we, we often refer to as either working out loud or teaching mm-hmm. out loud. I believe it was John Stepper who first coined this idea of working out loud and then Some people have sort of said, you know, teaching out loud, I blog about my teaching evaluations or blog about the kinds of things I'm working on. But then even just having a page on one's domain that was, here are some projects I'm working on. Mm -hmm. And and it it would be like something dot something. And and there was this uh, kind of flurry of posts where I thought, this is so fun to see people from (laughs) all over the world and the kinds of things they're working on. Then you can, like you say, you can... Mm -hmm. 
when you're doing that more regularly and you have some rigor and that just can really improve the collaboration. So before we go too much further, I know I didn't want to bury people in vocabulary, but I think we really want (laughs) to at least and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think really three words we want to introduce one we already did, which would be agile. Mm -hmm. And then the second one, tell us a little bit about Scrum, and then we'll talk about sprints. <laughs> so let's, and, then, and then let me know if there's any others we need to fill in the gaps on. Yeah. So I think that's a good basic line. Um, so Scrum is not an acronym. A lot of people think it's an acronym, um, but it's really a reference to the rugby Scrum, the move in rugby, which is really actually very violent. So it's probably not the best metaphor, but everyone on those teams is all in one giant pile trying to get the ball and everyone has a specific role, right? Everyone knows exactly what their role is and they're all trying to achieve the same goal and they're all trying to do that one thing. So that was a reference from, I think it was a 1970, 1980 article in the Harvard Business Review about about good teams. So Scrum is a process that falls under the agile umbrella of practices. Some people call it a method. I think it's more of a framework. Um, It's a framework for doing work for doing complex work, knowledge work, or kind of that never ending work. Like, you know, you were talking about Canvas. So they're always updating, right? So it's it's not that monolithic thing anymore where you get a CD every year with some updates. So they're constantly trying to, to um, do things and, and move things forward and be responsive to customers, clients, students in our case. So Scrum is, is, is divided into sprints. So we can kind of define that term too. And a sprint is really just a time box amount of time that you or the team decides that they're going to accomplish a specific set of goals. So if you're in software development, the iconoclast will say that's anywhere from two to four weeks. As a a professor or with my students or with myself, you can do really whatever you want as long as you kind of define a time frame and, and that's your frame. So the process starts with a planning meeting. There, there are different roles that, that aren't overly important, I think, for faculty right, right now at the moment. But, you know, all members of the team and kind of their, their facilitators and kind of their business liaisons get together and look at all of the things that need to get done on the software, on the project. And the, that list is prioritized by the business contact. And then the team works with them to decide how much can we get done in a sprint, Okay, we know how fast we move, we know the complexity of these things, how much can we get done? So they will then choose as many of those items as they they think they can finish, they'll work that out, and then they'll move into the actual sprint. So that's just kind of your day to day work. And every morning, the if you're a software developing team, the an agile software developing team, they call they have a meeting called daily scrum, sometimes it's referred to as stand up because it is actually a stand up meeting. They'll usually meet in the same corner of the room, everyone will stand up and they, they answer three questions and only three questions. There's no conversation. It's more of an accountability meeting than a progress meeting. And the three questions are, what have I done since we last met? What am I planning to do today? Where might I need help or where am I blocked? So, and there's no conversation with that. They, they'll just go around and everyone gets to respond to that. And then, and then when that meeting breaks, everyone can go have a conversation about what maybe they want to do or how they want to move forward or how they want to help someone. And then as you go through that process, when you get to the last day of your sprint, there are two meetings. There's a review meeting, which is basically a public demonstration of the work that you've created. So here's the software we developed. Here's how it works. We want your feedback. Anybody else who shows up could be other teams. It could be stakeholders. It could be clients and customers, whoever kind of shows up to provide feedback to that team on the work that they've done. And the second meeting, I think, which I, I probably love the most of these meetings, is called a retrospective meeting. And that's just for the team. 
And that is a process meeting. If the review is really about, here's our product during our sprint, a retrospective is about, how did we do as a group? Were we successful in how we collaborated? Where did we have some hiccups? What do we need to talk through to improve our collaboration next time? And there's a whole bunch of activities you can do for that. But the goal of that meeting is to really check in and say, are we collaborating well? Are we supporting each other? Where do we need personal, professional development? What can we do better next time? And they'll pick one or two things from that discussion and commit to working on those as a team in terms of your process over the course of the next sprint once they move into planning. So it's a nice tidy little framework with a beginning and an end, but it's still very iterative because all the feedback you get in the review and in your retrospective goes back into the next planning meeting. And then you kind of start the process over. There's two themes that I'm hearing from you and also from having read the book. One is just thinking differently about timeframes. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think so often about you know, sitting in strategic planning meetings and all this. And I mean, it's not like there isn't a place for that. Absolutely. But right. the percentage of time I have spent in my life doing that <laughs> versus the percentage of my life that would have been enriched by thinking in much, much, much mm-hmm. shorter time frames. Right. And then the second one, specifically about some of these meetings is that we're not doing that at the expense of lacking the reflection on our own work and our process and our effectiveness. Because I think that would be thinking in two extremes of, you know, oh, the strategic planning, the longer term stuff is, you know, all about that reflection and heady stuff. And this is just, you know, get it done, task management, you know, and it it doesn't have that reflection, but it's built into the system. Right. Yeah. Scrum's kind of in the middle of all that. It's not that you don't have big goals, right? You, you do have kind of bigger, longer term goals or strategic goals or objectives that you want to re- reach over a long period of time. But if you say, here's our strategic goal, here are strategic goals, you have five years go, nothing's going to happen until six months before it's due. And then everyone's going to freak out, right? They're just it's panic because that's just human nature. Oh, we have plenty of time. We'll do it later. But in reality, if you take those five year goals, And you set much smaller ones over a period of time and even take those down a little bit further. What are we going to do this month? What are we going to do this semester? And really break those down too. Then you can see progress and you get feedback on it earlier. You can report out earlier to people who care, bring students in to listen to what's going on or have them on the work teams who are developing these things. Because oftentimes we might have a goal and that goal might shift over five years. Something dramatic could happen at your institution and you, you need to pivot And maybe if you're kind of stuck in that cycle uh, without kind of thinking in smaller terms toward those larger goals, you might get stuck or you might not be able to move forward. Or the work, what's worse is the work that you've done might not have been needed or no one wants to waste their time on work that ultimately ends up not being necessary. So this, the iteration cycle allows you to get things done faster and work towards your goals, but also to catch problems earlier, to get feedback much earlier and to avoid some of those kind of panic moments if you've kind of left things too long to get some stuff done. At the start of every episode, which this hasn't changed in four years, so I guess we haven't been very agile. (laughs) I haven't been very (laughs) agile. We talk about, you know, being focused. This show is focused on teaching at the effective facilitation of learning and then also focuses on personal productivity so that we can have more peace in our lives and be more present for our students. So I'd like to talk just for a few minutes. This can sometimes when we hear things like this, thinking about how hard it would be to do this on a grand scale within our institution, but you give a lot of very practical suggestions for how we could do this as individuals 
or mm-hmm. even within the little slices of influence that we have within our institutions. Mm-hmm. So could you talk about a few ways that we could just do this as individuals, faculty members, mm-hmm. whether I know you've got great suggestions in the book about research, about mm-hmm. you know even committees that we're a part of, how could we take right. this and, and really narrow it down to just our individual work? Mm-hmm. I think probably the easiest place to start for an individual is with a scrum board, which is really the simplest design thing you've ever seen, really. And it makes so much sense when you look at it. But it's a it's a board that has three simple columns. There's a to do or a backlog, kind of a backlog of items that you wanted to do. The middle column is the work in progress column. And then the end column is done so that you can kind of celebrate what you've accomplished. So I think one of the easiest things you can do, whether you're looking at your teaching or your research or even your service is to just start with a simple scrum board. Usually that's a whiteboard or a wall. I've, I've seen people do it just on the back of their office doors. It's a simple three-column structure. The first column is your backlog or your to-do list, kind of the things that are in the queue that you want to do. There's a work-in-progress column in the middle. Um, and then their last column is just done. And when you draw it, you always draw the work-in-progress column a little bit narrower just to remind yourself that you can't do everything at once. But there's stuff in the backlog. It's still going to be there. It's not going anywhere. So let's kind of focus on what we can do now. So in that backlog, you would list maybe some of what are the major projects that you're working on. And it, it might be a class, but I often use it more for research and for service than for classes. Just because classes move so fast and having to write a sticky note to put on their develop Thursday's lesson is, is just going to kind of waste some time that you could be doing actually writing that lesson. So for research and service, I'll often put, you know, this article that I'm working on, or this data collection piece that I'm working on, on one sticky note, and I color code everything because (laughs) I I like things to be neatly organized in that sense. So, you know, one project about the retrospective article I'm writing might note, and then I'll have smaller sticky notes that list the different things that I need to do to finish that article, whatever stage that it's in. And the goal of kind of articulating those tasks is to break them down into reasonable chunks. You know, when we think about our to-do list, you know, if you're writing an article, you might have a a check on your on your checklist or to-do list that says write lit review. But that is a really complicated thing to do, right? There's you've got to find the articles, you've got to read them, you've got to take notes, you've got to take it, you've got to type them up, (laughs) you've got to actually figure out what the structure is. That's a really complex piece of work to do. So rather than just writing a sticky note for your board that says, write lit review, you could break that down into much smaller steps that you can actually accomplish. And the nice thing about breaking those things down that way is that you can move something into the work in progress column. And then hopefully it's a small enough chunk of time and and work that you can pretty quickly move it into the done column and you see progress. There is something oddly psychologically beneficial for taking one sticky note and walking it across the board into work in progress and into done. When I do this with students, obviously we, if we're in class, we don't have a big whiteboard or anything. So we'll use manila folders that they just use smaller sticky notes in for their columns. So I teach them how to set it up and they, they kind of make their backlog for what they know now about the project. And then they will inevitably write something of several silly sticky notes that are like create scrim board, read the assignment, you know, and they move those things into done. And there's always a little cheer of excitement that they've accomplished something. And every time they come back into class and they pull out their, their scrum boards, they're excited to see that they've accomplished something. But it's also a signal too that if something is stuck in work in progress for a while, maybe that's the ticket that was assigned to someone and that person isn't doing that particular sticky note, that's a conversation that needs to happen sooner rather than later. It's not just someone not showing up. There's accountability built into that board. Use the board and when you kind of come back and talk about what you're doing when you're working in a group, 
But I find that to be accountable in my research too. If I've moved something into work in progress and it's sitting there for a long time, I need to have a conversation with myself about is this what's holding me up here? Am I waiting for someone else? Um, am I just really not into it? Is it too big and it's frustrating me and I need to break it down further? So it, it's, it's kind of a rem accountability reminder. Like I've made this commitment. I've decided that this is important and this is my priority and I want to do this thing. Something isn't working with it right now. What can I do to kind of look at that and um, see how I can fix that? And, and I think you could do this with committee work too. I have heard of no one who's tried it yet. So that chapter is pretty speculative, but you know, we all hate just sitting in meetings and, you know, you're talking about strategic planning earlier. Those can be wonderful conversations, but that, you know, you, you have to have them kind of over a period of time and then they kind of just start, you know, spreading out and then they're just meetings. So how can we use kind of goal oriented kind of scrum stories and scrum notes to really kind of move forward and feel like we're doing something right. Oftentimes the committee work, you don't necessarily see a product maybe in two years, there's the task force report or something, but what other things can you be showing? You know, it might not be a written report, but it might be kind of a discussion or a focus group or, or something where you can get feedback earlier. I like Scrum because it divides work into workable chunks. It provides a little bit of accountability because you've defined what you think your priorities are. And if, if that's not working out, then you have that conversation. And it's the, just that little bit of extra language, Scrum and some of the different ways that you break up work is enough of a trigger to kind of break you out of your old kind of to-do list mentalities and to think about how you're doing your work in a different way. So just that little mind, those little mindset shifts, I think are, are really useful and valuable. I have not tried a scrum board yet, although our conversation today, reading your book and also hearing you on Katie Linder's Research in Action <laughs> podcast has motivated me to consider trying it. And I've got a perfect whiteboard in my office that awesome. would work, <laughs> although I kind of work in different spaces. So I, I might yeah. sometimes even lean more toward the digital, but yeah, that's maybe, maybe even printing it out, you know, periodically and hanging it up just so that yeah. it's, you know, it yeah. says a lot what we choose to surround ourselves with. But Absolutely. what I have done is even just a list of current projects, which would be in this case, both a combination of a work in progress and a backlog. Right. And to me, that regular review of just, let's get realistic. This has been sitting on here in an on hold thing. Yeah. I mean, it's that's okay. But right. but what it, what are you going to get done in this next period of time? And uh, another thing that has been really helpful to me is Robert Talbert introduced me to what he calls trimesterly planning. And so there was mm -hmm. a really popular book, The 12 Week Year, and the 12 Week mm -hmm. Year talks about right, you know yeah. planning in, in shorter increments than your typical annual planning. But 12 mm -hmm. week periods for most of us, unless we teach in a quarter system, doesn't really right. make sense to us. So right. in his case, he thinks about the fall, he thinks about the spring, and he thinks about the summer. And those are really yeah. different seasons. And I used to just have annual planning. I'd have it in my little task manager and plan right. my goals for the year. And by the time spring came, I thought, who was that woman? Do all of that. <laughs> yeah, but I suspect though that from what I'm taking away from your learning is that maybe even a semester for some work that we do would be too long. That, you know, we, we could even think about a five week and a five week and a five week. I mean, it would totally depend on what you were working on. But right. if you wanted to push yourself, that sense of urgency and we're really going to strive for this, it, it could be if it's something like a literature review, is there, is, can, I mean, that certainly could be done in five weeks. Right. I also yeah, could take I think, 15. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Um, and I think that's, I left it really open in the book because I want people to choose the intervals that make the most sense to them. Um, I still do semesterly planning. I'll do spring, summer, fall planning. And these are some of the goals that I have. 
But then I'll go in and say, okay, for this month or for this two weeks, this is how I'm going to get there. So I write all that out as well. And then I can decide what my priorities are and what I can actually do. And those found moments are the ones that I'm going to block off on my calendar and, and not let anybody touch. So, and, and you can also do it if you do it in groups. It's really great for writing groups. You can have a scrum board in your office and be accountable to yourself. And if you work well that way, that's awesome. That's, you know, that works really well for me. But some people need another kind of extra layer of accountability to have just a, a writing buddy or a course development buddy or something like that. So if you all have, not, even not necessarily a shared board, but you have your boards and then you report to each other every week. Here's what I've done since we last met. Here's what I'm doing now. Here's where I need some advice. And that might be, can you look at my draft? <laughs> you know, things that, that you can just be a little accountable for. And, you know, it, it might be a writing group where you're all working on writing and sharing writing, or it might just be, these are my goals. You have goals too. Maybe at like a, mid, a mid-career kind of faculty group or something like that. Here's where I'm going. Here's where I might be stuck and would just like some advice from folks. So there's a, extra ways of kind of making what seems like very individual work still kind of collaborative in the sense that you can share with people what you're doing and get feedback on that um, as you go. I had a recent question and answer show and someone asked about delegating to students, whether it's a TA type of a situation or they're helping with research, that kind of thing. And as you were talking about this, I think it was part of the daily scrum stand up meeting, but what mm-hmm. about the three questions? Right. Mm-hmm. Could you maybe talk about how we could use those three questions in a meeting that we had with students who were student researchers or, or students who were RTAs and how that, how that might help with delegation and, and communication? Sure. A daily Scrum has become a really good tool for students in my classes and undergraduate research students that I mentor. So again, the stand-up, it, it's a short meeting that, in software development, but it's a three-question meeting. What have I done since we last met? What am I doing now? And where might I need where might I need some help or advice or suggestions? So when I do Scrum with kind of larger scale service learning projects or collaborative projects with my students, I teach them how to do daily Scrum and then they do it. You know, those, I'm lucky in the sense that in those classes, the projects are the content in a lot of ways. So I don't have to cover a ton of stuff in the textbook. It's integrated into what, we, what they do collaboratively. So once they get kind of rolling, they come in to class and they get their little scrum board folder and then they have a daily stand-up meeting and they know what they're, they know what they're supposed to do. I don't have to facilitate that. They can, they can just do it themselves. And I usually do have them stand up because the reason you stand up is because it's awkward. No one wants to stand up for very long and talk to someone else. So the standing up discourages having a conversation rather than just answering the questions. So I'll have students do that and they kind of do it. And if I've got multiple teams, I'm kind of walking around listening to see if there's any place where they might need a little help a little bit later in the class period or where I see there's a gap maybe across the groups where I need to do a little just-in-time teaching or send them some resources to help them kind of work through a challenge they might be having. But for students in that sense, it's, it's accountability, but it's also very much ownership kind of authority over what they're doing and agency in their group throughout that process rather than just kind of that typical that guy's a slacker or that this person is taking over the group they have that feedback constantly so they're constantly really talking about themselves so that they are working toward collaborating rather than just cooperating which is really kind of what they do when they divide and conquer work like that I've also worked with a lot of undergraduate research students who we've had develop their own board. And if they're abroad for a semester, we'll probably do that in a Google Doc that we share and kind of go back and forth that way. If I meet with them um, for their research time, we'll, we'll kind of do the stand up and have them report. 
sometimes if what I'm working on is kind of close to what they're doing, I will contribute to that as well. So that there's kind of a reciprocal, we're both working on something kind of feedback. So they get to see how I work and how I approach research and how I approach writing and where I might be stuck, which is kind of a, a new thing for some of them, you know, when they're realizing that as you research, you're probably revealing more questions than you are answers. And that's great, you know, and it's so kind of modeling that behavior, I think with students can be really useful. So there's, there's two instances where I've used kind of the daily scrum model with students. Before we get to the recommendation segment, I want to close with a final question. In the book, of course, you expand on this much more than we have time for today. But if you had to just pick one thing to think about for the broader university, because you've given lots of practical Mm -hmm. examples of how we can use this, which I think is, you know, most people listening, but if you wanted to inspire all Mm -hmm. of us to have a greater vision for our universities at large, what -hmm. would be your advice of how we might think about using Agile in? Oh, goodness. It's the the big $20 million question, right? Well, it also (laughs) could be a really small one in the sense of sometimes these small small things can produce right. great results. Yeah. So I don't want to put yeah. too much pressure on you. To be- <laughs> <laughs> but I think maybe two things that I've been thinking about now is really actually trying it in committee work, really reinventing committee work in a lot of ways. I have a quote in the book from, from a, an agile book that is basically just says all meetings suck. You know, and no one wants <laughs> to be in meetings all the time, but if we use meetings for the valuable work rather than just reporting out, then we're going to feel more engaged and we're going to want to go to those meetings and, and, and actually work for it. So if we think toward what are the goals of these committees, you know, and there are certain committees, promotion and tenure um, curriculum, it's not going to work very well, but those other kind of task force oriented committees and things like that, I think you could use this structure and actually facilitate the work and feel like you're getting the work done faster but just as well, if not better, because you're doing it over a period of time and you really feel engaged with it and you're, you're committed and you're, you're accountable to everyone else in that process. Another thing that I've been really thinking about a lot lately is rethinking classes in general. We've got this kind of rigid, I teach in a 14-week semester, so it's 14 weeks, 200 a week. And it, it's you know that old kind of Carnegie mentality of seat time equals learning. We know that's not true at, at all. So I've been thinking about what what if we create experiences rather than courses, a, a development process for whatever that ends up looking like. You could use Scrum to kind of innovate in that way and figure out what you could do and test things out. We are, are often not very agile in how we develop programs. And a lot of times you'll hear things like, well, we need proof that this is going to work. This new program is going to work before we do it. But how can you know if it's going to work if you don't? try it. Right. So I think there are ways that we can start thinking about incubating experiences and being more open to trying things out and seeing what works and seeing what sticks and being okay if it doesn't work. You know, trying a program or a small section of courses or experiences and throwing students in there, having them help us develop it. And if it doesn't work, okay, we learned something really interesting about what does and doesn't work in terms of this learning. So let's try something else or let's do some experimenting and and rethinking the way we actually plan a semester when the students are taking four classes and doing a million outside activities and, and not really being able to see how all of that connects in some way. So how can we we make it more interdisciplinary, but really think in terms of experiences, not just courses? Thank you so much for both of those suggestions. And I hope that we can all take some inspiration from it. And this is the point in the show where we each get to give our recommendations. And I wanted to recommend a, it's an app and also a service available on 
Androids and on iPhones. And it is called Calm. And Calm mm-hmm. is a really, in fact, it won a, a bunch of design awards from Apple in the most recent design awards that they had. It is a meditation app, but it's got um, music also available. It's got meditation, things it'll take you through around. I started out with just a simple one, seven days of calm, and now I'm on to the 20 days of calm. And uh, mm-hmm. But it's also got tools to help you sleep. It's got master classes. I mean, so, I mean, it's just very rich. As an example, I had thought about investing in one of those music apps that someone had recommended on a prior show that, you know, mm-hmm. music specifically to help you focus. And, and, I, and I had right. really liked it, but I was like, oh, another subscription, that kind of thing. So <laughs> this has that in there. And I'm finding, you know, similar benefits that I found when I did that other trial. So a little tip for you, especially if you're on an iPhone, it was a little bit pricey for a subscription for me. I, I do this so much, so I have <laughs> to really limit it. But if I went to the website, I could get a discount because then I'm not buying it through Apple, which takes 30% of the cut. I'm not begrudging Apple for taking their percentage sure. of the cut, but that's <laughs> how that works. So I could get it less expensively if I went straight to Calm's website. And then once I'm a member, I can log in on whatever device it is I'm using and had access to that. So I'd, I'd really suggest checking it out. They have a seven day free trial. You could see if it was for you and I'm really, really finding it extremely beneficial. And one little tidbit too, they also have a little meditation for kids. And so I, my <laughs> son was particularly squirrely the other day. And I'm, <laughs> now let me just <laughs> try this out. And he totally closed his eyes, completely got into it. And I mean, it's really, really fun. So I particularly like the woman's voice who was on. It's the same woman on all the ones, at least the ones I've tried so far. And she has a really great voice. And it's just, uh, I've really found it compelling. So my recommendation today is for people to check out the Calm app and also their associated ser- service. Great. I've definitely seen that coming up more and more. So I am going to check that out. So I have a few recommendations. I mentioned really, really briefly earlier, a program called Trello, which is there's a website version of it. And there is an app version of it. And it is kind of a a task management project management system. But you make little sticky notes, little electric sticky notes, and you can make a board and you can use it that way. So um, I know a lot of people who use that when they maybe either don't want to use a physical board or don't have space for that, or they travel a lot, like like you said, and they want to have it kind of in one place. So Trello is a is an easy, there's not a big kind of learning curve on that. So it's, a, it's an easy little software program that you can keep your boards with you. And a book I want to recommend that I recently read, I've been reading a lot about kind of innovation and change in higher education lately and came across a book by Susan Blum from Notre Dame called I Love Learning, I Hate School. An Anthropology of College. And she did an anthropological study of her students at Notre Dame over a period of time. And, and it was really compelling to me. And I really related to it in so many ways, because she she's honest about starting from the from that point of students are lazy. Why aren't they taking my course seriously? Why are they just throwing things together? But when she really started looking at it from that sociological perspective and, and what they were doing and what they were dealing with. It really rebuilds your empathy for students and, and thinking about, again, that experience thing, I think, rather than just classes. You know, one of the examples she gives is students devoting a ton of their time to extracurricular activities. But if you think about it in those activities, if you're on the student newspaper or you're captain of a team, you have mastery there. You have autonomy there. You know, there, there's, there's action in those places. So they're learning a ton there. So how can we kind of use that in our educational practices as well? So she really helped me kind of reconnect with, with students as people and what they're going through and, and how to think about how do we help our students learn rather than just play school. So I found that book very valuable. 
Oh, thank you so much for suggesting. I've heard of it before, mm-hmm. but I, uh, the way that you just described it really makes me want to to pick it up. I love anything it's that compelling. can increase our empathy for our mm-hmm. students is just vital for yeah. the work that we do. Right. We need to regularly be infusing ourselves <laughs> with things like that. I also really get a kick out of when people use their research methodologies in studying, teaching and learning. I, yeah. That is just um, phenomenal and I can't get enough yeah. of that. So thank you for that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I was going to mention you were talking about Trello and I've been mm-hmm. using it for a while, but then now realized I didn't use it at all to it's the extent to which it can mm-hmm. be used because you can have yeah. these cards in there like you were mentioning. Mm-hmm. But cards yep. can also have checklists associated with them. Mm-hmm. So you were talking about with the stickies on the wall, right. having smaller sticky notes for the smaller tasks. You can do that on Trello as well. And if anyone likes to sort of tinker with automation, there's the service called Zapier, Z-A-P-I-E-R. I'll put a link to it in the show notes that would let you even connect maybe a Google form that then puts the information from the Google form into Trello. And if that sounds super complicated, I mean, first, yes, play with Trello, like just just play with (laughs) Trello. And but once you got to know Trello, it is not too difficult to even create a form that could then go in. I mean, I could see lots of opportunities for just making a little bit more efficiency. And I've been thinking about starting to store prospective guests for the podcast in Trello, because like you were talking about, you can set different stages on it and then I can just drag the cards over and also I like having pictures of people because as um, anyone listening for a while knows I try to have diversity in every sense of the word so then if I start to get too many similar looking faces or (laughs) people from similar two similar disciplines or that kind of thing I mean I really try try to think from every perspective so that's really helpful and color coding is super fun on Trello (laughs) too because I can color code if somebody recommended a guest I take Mm -hmm. it more credence than if someone recommended a person than if just I thought of it on my own you know I really really value the community that contributes ideas and stuff so lots of fun stuff you can do with Trello and it's not hard to learn at all like you said Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry to be like talking all about your, <laughs> this was supposed to be your recommendation. <laughs> you sound like you use it more than I do. So. <laughs> I'm like so excited. So <laughs> I actually don't use it more than you probably, but it's, it is so easy to learn, but then just the, like, oh my gosh, one little next step. And before you know it, you're, you're yeah. able to be really making even more use out of it. Yeah. It's a, I love, I love tools that have an easy immersion and then it's just easy to step up your game. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really fun talking to you after having read your book. And I took a lot away from it. But like you were talking about reading groups and stuff. It's really fun to actually get yeah. to the talk to the person who wrote it and share some <laughs> ideas. I hope people will pick up your book for sure. And I, I just took a lot away. And I feel like I still will continue to do so. I mean, it's one that I'm just going to keep revisiting in my mind. And also I can easily go back to. Thank you so much. That's really really special to me. So thank you for having me. Thanks once again to Dr. Rebecca Pope Ruark for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed number 219. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have any colleagues who don't listen to the podcast or don't listen to really any podcast, the biggest thing that holds them back is knowing how to subscribe to a show. Most of us have an app either already installed on our phones or just a couple of taps away because they're available on all the platforms of phones these days. But helping someone subscribe is a big step you can take to getting them regular professional development like teaching and higher ed offers. So next time you're a little early to a faculty meeting or a committee meeting, see if uh, your friends subscribe to any podcasts and show them how easy it is. 
and that would really help spread the word about the show. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to Rebecca again, and I'll see you next time.